Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at trinityharborchurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, you'll also notice that the Scripture is printed for you in your worship guide. And just before we read the Scripture, as you're turning there, let me say a a few words by way of introduction, by way of frame of reference for you. We're early on in a new sermon series at Trinity Harbor, which is entitled, uh, it's on mission, and it's entitled Chosen to be Sent. And at the very heart of the sermon series is this observation, which occurs, we're making over and over again in Scripture, Um, And it's this, that God extends His love and redeems someone for the purpose of then using them as an instrument of furthering His redemption, of furthering His plans. And so we're saying throughout the course of the sermon series that if we've received God's love, if He's saved us and transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His Son, then He's done that for a purpose. It's not that we lace our fingers behind our head and kick back in a hammock until Jesus should come back again, it's that we are actually uh, saved to participate in the extension of God's salvation, which is a great privilege, but a privilege we, we are so distracted from culturally and can so easily put on the back burner. So that's what is at the heart of the mission uh, of the series on mission, and we're actually approaching it by going through our own mission statement to show you how the mission statement is both encaptures this and is, uh, we think, very biblically informed. And so for two weeks in a row, we're taking one clause of the mission statement, and we're looking at one negative example one week, and then the following week we're looking at a positive example. So this week is we're still on the first clause of our mission statement, which is our mission at Trinity Harbor is to be transformed by God's grace. Now that's at the heart of our mission statement. Why? Because we don't believe any change happens for us individually or as a church apart from God's grace. That is the agent of change. And as we hope to go into the world and see change happen, what will make that happen? The extension of God's grace. Nothing else will make that happen. So last week we looked at Saul, who was a terrible example. Someone who resisted God's grace, didn't want to be changed, didn't want to participate. And it's a really sad story. This week we look at someone different. We look at the story of Zacchaeus and see what it means to truly be transformed by God's grace. So with those introductory words, I'll ask if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10 of chapter 19 of Luke. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but in account of the crowd he could not But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek 
and to save the lost. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Many of you know that I'm a fan of the radio program, This American Life. And recently I was listening to one of their episodes and they uh, had discovered a movie uh, trilogy that had been lost. It's called the Beaver Trilogy. And it's called that because it's related to a town in Utah called Beaver, Utah. And in 1979, uh, kind of an odd set of coincidences occurred. There was a man who was working at a TV station in Salt Lake City, and a brand new device had come out, which no one had really had any experience with, and it was the handheld video recorder. And so he decided he wanted to try it out, and he walked out into the parking lot, and there just happened that a random young man of 21 had shown up and was taking pictures, and he was from Beaver, Utah, and he had come to Salt Lake City with the hope of somehow getting on television. It was his dream. And so he came to the television studio and realized that this man was filming him and almost becomes giddy, starts doing impersonations, starts acting for the man whose name is Trent, who is doing the filming. And there is this um, incredible quality about the individual, this 21-year-old. You're, you're enticed by him, you're interested in him, but at the same time, he's a little bit odd. And so you are, you're listening to this dialogue go on, and... It's kind of random, and then uh, the man who was filming said, I could hardly put the camera down. There was something about this, this person who was so interesting that I just kept filming him. So he films him for the rest of the day. They part company, and uh, the young man goes back to Beaver. And a little while later, Trent gets a letter from the young man. He says, listen, I put together a talent show, and I, I hope I'm not bothering you. I hope I don't seem crazy, but I would love it if you would come and would film the talent show. I'm gonna be, uh, I'm gonna be one of the acts. And if you want, in that morning, I'm gonna be at the, uh, open mortuary, putting on my makeup, and you can come and get some shots there. Right? So apparently the only person qualified to do makeup in Beaver, Utah is the mortician. And that's where they were doing makeup. So, Trent decides, well, this is something that can't be missed. And he drives to Beaver, Utah to film this talent show, and it's, it's kind of ridiculous, but the, this movie, the first part of the trilogy, is really only three scenes. It's the parking lot, and then it goes to the mortuary where uh, the young man who's never named is getting suited up as Olivia Newton-John, and he's going to go on and perform one of her songs for the talent show, and then the last scene is the talent show, and he's the last act. Of course, he's organized it, and it's painful. He doesn't look like Olivia Newton-John. He certainly does not sing like Olivia Newton-John. But this is the closing act, and the, the movie seems to end. It goes black, and if you're seeing it for the first time, you don't know that there's a, this is a trilogy. So at the moment of blackness, the movie comes back up. Suddenly, you're back in the parking lot in the same place. There's another young man who's taking pictures in the parking lot, and Trent, the person with the video camera, is back out there. But this time, it's, uh, it's a year and a half or so later, uh, and it's a young Sean Penn. He's just filmed Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He's not a star at all. He's an out-of-work actor. And uh, what Trent did was after making this little documentary with the young man, he said, I want to spend my life making movies. So he moved out to L.A. and uh, cast Sean Penn, of all people, as the star in this movie. And so it's basically a take-for-take reenactment of what happened in the first documentary with Sean Penn, but it's got a strange ending. The ending changes. And it's at the ending where... uh, there's uh, the young man goes back to his home. He's dressed as Olivia Newton-John. He's weeping, 
And he calls up Trent, who is the, the videographer, filmer. And he says, you know, I'm feeling kind of awkward about the show tonight. Would you please not put that uh, on TV? And the person says, listen, you were great. You were fantastic. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Conversation ends. And then in this, this new ending to the second version, uh, obviously the young man is incredibly distraught. Incredibly awkward, worried about what's going to happen. And in the second version, he picks up a gun intending to harm himself. At that moment, the phone rings and there's the voice of a young woman who says, listen, I saw you tonight at the talent show. You are amazing. I'd love for you to come to a party this Friday night. And you can be Olivia Newton-John and you will be the entertainment. And so he hangs up the phone and straightens his wig and wipes his tears away and starts singing into a hairbrush like Olivia Newton-John again. Melodramatic. A weird, happy ending that's been slapped onto a story that seemed to have ended. Very quickly, round three. Same thing, except now it's high production value the third time around. Money's been invested. In fact, Trent would spend $50,000 to make the third version. And it starts off with a very young Crispin Glover, which, if you don't know who that is, he played the dad of uh, Marty, in the Back to the Future movies. This is still the early 80s. He's an out-of-work actor, and he goes through the entire sequence. But this time, there's more of a backstory to him. He's, he's a creative young person who's afflicted by being in a small town, and everyone's picking on him, and there's much more angst about who he is. And the person who's directing it, the person who's playing Trent, is seedy, villainous, doesn't care about him at all, simply wants to get the movie out and make a great deal of money and so the movie then, again, ends the same way, but with those character changes. And the interviewer who is, uh, is going through this story and has uh, you know, summarized much of this, encapsulated it, gets to a place where she said, I was, I was interviewing him, and I was an hour into the interview, an entire hour of pushing him, saying, why do you keep remaking the story? And why does the ending change in the second one and in the third one? What is it about the story for you? And so it's an hour, and he says, well, I really don't like to talk about this. He says, but in the real story, version one, there was a call, and he begged me not to put it on TV. And I assured him he was great, it was fine, he was being ridiculous. And then there was an accident with a gun that was never elaborated upon, but Trent was pretty sure that he had tried to injure himself because he was so distraught and not particularly in a good place when he went through this. And Trent, who, you know, this is some 20, 30 years later, said, I was racked with guilt. I was racked with shame that I would have taken advantage of this young person. He says, I keep making this story, and I put a happy ending on it to try to correct what happened. I keep doing reruns until it assuages the guilt and shame for me. And the interviewer said, well, has that worked? And he said, no, I feel terrible. Is that not a metaphor for the way in which we engage life so often? Is there something that is so shameful, so saturated with guilt? What do we do? We, we keep remaking the story, but we try to fix, tack on some happy ending. Try to make up a story ourselves that will grant meaning and significance and resolution to something that is saturated and characterized by shame and guilt. 
And yet we can't bring happiness to the story. We can't bring resolution in the way that Trent was trying to bring resolution to that story. It raises the perplexing problem of how real transformation happens. Trent couldn't transform the story of that young man. He couldn't transform himself in the midst of his shame and guilt for what he had done. And it raises the question of what we really believe can happen when we start to talk about being transformed by God's grace. What does that mean? How do you experience it? Are you experiencing it? And if not, how do you taste more of it? Well, the story of Zacchaeus teaches us a lot about being transformed by God's grace. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. What does that mean? It means that Zacchaeus is over a bunch of other tax collectors, and he most certainly is taking a percentage off of everything that comes in and goes to Rome. Zacchaeus has one of these jobs that happen occasionally in unfortunate times where a country or an empire controls another country or an empire and decides to levy taxes on them. So Zacchaeus is a Jew who's taken the job of collecting money from his fellow Jewish people and giving it over to Rome. Now, how do you feel when the IRS comes knocking? How do you feel when the IRS wants to audit you? Mixed feelings, perhaps, but what if the IRS agent is your neighbor and the money is all going to North Korea or to Russia or to some other enemy state? That puts an entirely new spin on it, especially if they're oppressing you and that money that you're giving to them is never going to do anything for your life, never going to be invested in your community in any substantial way. This is the role Zacchaeus has chosen to play. So how do you think he does with friends? Right? In his community, he's despised. He's the individual that people would love to spit upon if they had the opportunity. He is uh, he's at, taking advantage of a situation at the expense of his own people. And as verse 7 shows us, Zacchaeus is incredibly unpopular. When Jesus actually decides to go to his house and dine with him, says they all grumbled. He had gone to, in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now we're confronted right at the beginning of our story of one of the major themes of Luke's gospel, and it's a beautiful theme, and it's actually what Jesus says emphatically at the end of our passage, which is that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's the agenda of the mission of the Son of Man. He's not interested in sitting down to lunch with the chief rabbis and the people who are important culturally. He's interested in sitting down with the person who is despised, who is considered a sinner by all. He's seeking and saving the lost. We're challenged by Jesus' example, but the first thing that we should do is celebrate it. Uniquely in all of history, our God is the God who runs in as the loving Father into the worst neighborhood imaginable. And He runs into that neighborhood to save you. To seek you out. To bring you home. That is a unique story amongst all of the world's religions, and it's something that we have to celebrate. But it's something we have to wrestle with too, because if that is Jesus' mission, then it is our mission. You might say, well, that's a bit of a jump. But over and over again in the New Testament, we are told that it is our mission. From the Great Commission in Matthew, that we are to go to the ends of the earth, and proclaim the gospel and baptize and make disciples, to Paul's proclamation that we are ambassadors of reconciliation, to the book of Revelation that celebrates who? Those who died for the testimony of their faith. We are a people who have been called out to be seeking the lost that they might be saved in Jesus Christ, which raises the question, how are you doing? 
Are you seeking the lost? What does that look like in your life? What kind of priority is that in your life? And if it's not, why isn't it one? We could talk about all kinds of reasons we struggle with it, right? Why do you struggle to actually go out and seek the loss and actually say something publicly about your faith? Well, we don't want to see, be seen as judgmental. We may lose some friends and not be liked. Who am I to articulate the faith? I'll leave it to others who have the gift. Any number of these notions we often hide behind. But I think there's a much deeper notion that keeps us from actually seeking the loss that they might be saved. And it's pervasive. It informs all of these other excuses that we might engage in. What happens when you actually challenge someone to consider that they reorient their life around Jesus Christ? When you go to them and say, listen, I actually really believe that Jesus was not just a human being, but was the Son of God. He died and was raised from the dead, and those who reorient their lives around Him will not only have the most abundant life in this life, but will have eternal life. You're asking someone to do something pretty substantial, which is essentially say, oh, okay, I'm going to reorient my entire life around this truth. I'm going to reshape everything. That's a big request of someone. And so as you engage that process, what does it do to you? What does it do to you when you're engaging it? Well, you would be, better be pretty sure about what you believe. If you're going to demand that someone else reorient their entire life around this, and you think, well, yeah, I, I better be sure about what I believe. What do I really believe? Well, and then you start to think, well, if I really believed what I said I believed, I think I'd be a lot more passionate about it, but I'm not very passionate about seeking the lost. If I'm not very passionate about it, do I really believe it? No. Well, that's not a place we like to go, is it? Where we really work down to the nitty-gritty and engage in one of the few activities, seeking the lost, that may come face-to-face with what we actually believe. If I'm not passionate about this, if I don't love Jesus in this way, well, what does it really say about my faith? That's a question that's much easier to avoid than to engage. And so why not avoid the practice that's going to lead me to that question rather than engage it? It's much easier to just go to church and say, yay for Jesus, and go on with my everyday life than to actually really struggle and ask the deepest and most important question. So what is really the nature of my faith? I think that is far more at the heart of why we are not serious or as serious as we could be about seeking the lost, about really passionately being public about our faith. Too often we prioritize other things so that we can be excused as kind of the idea, but the idea is more, let's just not think about that. And like a marriage that goes through the motions so that either spouse doesn't have to ask the real question that's the elephant in the room, which is, I really don't have love for this person. We're in a desperate place. That's where our relationship with God becomes. Going through the motions. Let's not ask the hard questions. Let's settle for a very superficial relationship that doesn't have any tension or conflict. Which, of course, is no relationship at all. Now that resonates with you at all, the story of Zacchaeus should give you hope and encouragement because it is the story of someone utterly transformed by God's grace. Jesus is coming into the community, and Zacchaeus, who apparently is a very short man, climbs a sycamore tree, which is a 
a tree with a low trunk and very wide sweeping branches. It gives him a little bit leverage to peer into the crowd. And of course, Jesus is quite well aware that uh, he is there. And he calls and beckons Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And interesting, what does it say about Zacchaeus? How does he receive Jesus? Joyfully. Really? You're not just the tax collector, you're the chief tax collector. You've swindled everyone in the community. Your entire livelihood is built on unrighteousness. And the righteous one wants to come over for lunch, and you receive him joyfully. Now, I imagine someone could say, well, Zacchaeus wants to build his reputation, so he's excited about the opportunity. Maybe by having Jesus, he'll get a little street credibility with the people he's alienated, perhaps. But I think the far better interpretation here is that Zacchaeus knows full well that he's terribly dissatisfied. He's rich, and he's miserable. And he's gone out to see Jesus because he believes that Jesus has something to offer. And in coming to his home, he receives him joyfully with the hope that this misery, this dissatisfaction will somehow be relieved. And boy... It shows us a picture of how often when we engage our communities, you know, often I hear people saying, well, I might, I might be public about my faith, I might seek the lost, but they seem so happy. Their kids are doing better than mine. Their landscaping is better than mine. They get a new car every two years. I'm not sure they need Jesus. But much like Zacchaeus, who would have been incredibly wealthy on the outside, and is miserable enough to climb up a tree and host Jesus, who is absolutely going to bring conviction to his life, our neighbors are not nearly as happy as they appear. In fact, there are such depths of misery and dissatisfaction and hopelessness and medicating all of those things with all sorts of things. And I think largely you know this to be true. But we have to remember that, that in our world it teaches us that salvation comes through money and possessions and image, we need to continually be saying, no, salvation comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. And if you think you can replace Jesus with money or possessions or image, you're going to be quite miserable. And Zacchaeus gets this. All right, So I want, I want to make three observations with how Zacchaeus understands what Jesus is doing and is transformed as a result. What does real transformation look like? These three things. Number one, Zacchaeus repents. And I'm just not talking about, oh, Jesus, please forgive me. Right? What does he do? He says, this day, anyone I've defrauded, I will pay back four times the amount that I've defrauded them. That's going to be an enormous amount of money. Zacchaeus has actually assigned for himself the steepest penalty in the law. The law that was reserved only for rustlers, animal stealers in the Old Testament. It was a fourfold repayment. He says, this is what I'm committing to, to make my sins right. It is not merely a confession, but it is a commitment to undo the harm his sin has caused. If you are not committed to undoing the sin your harm has caused, while you ask God for forgiveness, your repentance is pretend. It's the first thing you have to understand in being transformed by God's grace. And as you see this unfold, if you're stuck at the place of asking for forgiveness but not really being willing to repent, which means you don't care what the consequences are, you care more about being right with God, and you're going to undo the harm of the sin, then you're not really repenting, and your, your transformation isn't going to go any further. 
Zacchaeus' transformation goes on. Not only does he repent correctly or well and demonstrate to us for repentance, but second, Zacchaeus chooses to point his life in an entirely new direction. Zacchaeus isn't just repenting of his sin. Think about it. He can say, I'm going to pay everybody back four times. And that's real repentance. And I'm going to seek now to live in a way that's honest. I'm not going to defraud anyone. I'm going to seek to glorify God. But no, he says, I'm also going to participate in the mission of God. My life now has a purpose that I've been redeemed. And I am going to be committed to the poor. Which is, for Luke's gospel, is one of the chief ways by which we identify with Jesus. Do you see? Zacchaeus just hasn't repented. He said, okay, now my life is bound up in the mission that Jesus' life is bound up in. And if he's committed to relieving the, the uh, hurts of the poor, then my life is bound up in relieving the hurts of the poor. Of course, proclaiming Jesus at the same time. It's, he's participating in the very mission of Christ. And what might it look like for you to participate in that mission? What might it look like for us as a church to participate in that mission? We've said to you that this fall... One of the things amongst the many changes that we're doing is to create outreach opportunities, service opportunities within the community that we really carry on or seek to carry on the mission of Jesus to those around us. The first of those opportunities is going to be October 19th, and we're going to partner with For the Nations, which is a ministry that goes into refugee complexes in Dallas. You may not know this, but cities all over the United States regularly receive refugees and set them up, usually in the same apartment complex. And so we're going to go to one of those apartment complexes for two hours, and we're going to put on a program in which we seek to form relationships and get to know people, and there'll be a gospel presentation. And we both show kindness to those who are sojourners and perhaps are poor, and at the same time we proclaim the glory and the love of Jesus. And this is what it means for us to participate in the mission of Christ. And that may be your cup of tea, and I hope you sign up. You may say, I'm more interested in doing something else. But look at Zacchaeus. This idea that you could repent and just go about life is not really a biblical idea. Being transformed by the grace of Christ means, oh my goodness, his blood has washed away my sins. I owe him everything. How now do I participate in the life that he desires for me? Third, just one other interesting aspect about Zacchaeus and his transformation. Did you notice, you know, Zacchaeus doesn't go with Jesus. To Jerusalem, where all the terribly exciting and terribly sad things are going to happen. Zacchaeus, his mission, his responsibility to participate in the mission of Christ and to extend transformation to others is to stay put right where he is. To live, to continue being a tax collector, but now to do it honestly and to show kindness to the poor. You don't have to go to the remotest parts of the earth to participate in in being transformed and transforming others by the grace of Jesus Christ. You can do that on a day-to-day basis right here and right now with all of the people who are around you. And we see that Zacchaeus' mission will actually be local rather than uh, something that we sometimes think of as big and fancy and dramatic in terms of missions. And it's only after this that Jesus' pronouncement comes. Right? Zacchaeus is what? He's repented seriously. He's committed his life to participating in God's mission. And then Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Right? The Bible never really pictures salvation as, oh, I asked Jesus into my heart. 
Right? Now, the Bible shows us pictures over and over again of those who are truly saved become radically transformed by the grace of God. And that's, that's how we recognize salvation. Right? And you can't make that transformation happen. You have to rely upon the grace of Jesus for it to happen. I didn't tell you the end of the story with Trent and um, this young man from Beaver, Utah. Uh, Trent, with each of these films that Trent made, he did the same thing. He stuck them in the back of his closet and did nothing with them. And 13 years went by, and he was digging out his closet, and he found the three films. And for the first time, he strung them all together as one film. And for fun, he did a local showing at his theater. Well, one thing led to another, a bit of hubbub arise, and eventually Trent was invited to Sundance to screen the film that he had made uh, 20 plus years earlier. And so he had to try to find this kid. And so went through this whole rigmarole to find the kid, doesn't know if he's coming or not, goes to Sundance, the film screen, and people, uh, so imagine, you know, you don't know it's a trilogy, so the third one ends and people are like, well, is there a fourth one? It's kind of quiet. But then the pause starts and erupts, and there's an after-screening party. And as they're getting up, Trent recognizes the young man, who's not young anymore, as is in the back of the theater. And so he grabs him and goes out a side door and says, where have you been? Why didn't you respond? What's been going on? Blah, blah, blah. And so they start to talk, but soon they're engulfed in a wave of people and are taken to the after-screening party. And this young man is the star of the celebration. Uh, he's being toasted. Uh, beautiful women are hanging all over him. It's this kind of moment that you would never expect in the life of this individual. And it trans- sees this ending and how it, uh, it transforms the young man. So they're talking, of course, about working on a sequel. But the point is that the happy ending that Trent always desired, the ending that would assuage his shame and guilt, the ending that would give real hope to the young man, happened, but totally out of the power of Trent himself. Trent couldn't manufacture that ending. It just had to happen. And in the Christian life, you cannot manufacture being transformed by God's grace. But this is what you can do. Saying, like Zacchaeus, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to repent seriously. And I'm going to participate in the mission of God. And then to cry out to Jesus, please, transform me. Change me into who you want me to be. And that's when the most radical transitions of place happen. Because you throw yourself upon the mercy of God while walking in faithfulness. And then really beautiful things come about. And those are the beautiful things that we want to see happen here. Friends, do you want to be serious about transformation? Do you want to see greater transformation in your life? greater transformation in the church, greater transformation in the communities in which we live? I certainly hope the answer is yes. And if the answer is yes, then we have to get serious. Serious about repenting and serious about engaging God's mission. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have rescued us. And we thank you that you have given us purpose. A purpose that transcends all other purposes that you would use us to extend your reconciliation, your redemption, your very grace is a terribly wonderful privilege and honor and forgive us for not viewing it the way we should. And forgive us for being afraid. 
I think we are desperately afraid to be put in those places where we must wrestle with the question of what we truly believe. So we pray that you would forgive us, but we also ask that by the grace that you give so generously, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would be transforming us. You would be increasing our faith. You would be helping us to walk in faithfulness. And as we do so, that we would marvel, marvel at the lives you change. We ask all of these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, the gracious one, Jesus Christ. Amen.